mindfulness mode. Wherever you are is okay. Just be present with your moment. And that doesn't mean your circumstances. It means who you are in the moment. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here in Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. We are here today, Mindful Tribe, with a mindfulness coach, and he actually created the language of mindfulness. And this is soon to be a book, a training, a TEDx talk, and he's studied a lot of aspects of mindfulness and he established the Quest Institute. It is so exciting to have Brett Hill with us right here. Brett, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am in mindfulness mode today. I really appreciate the question too. Yeah, well, that's great. And tell us, what does mindfulness mean to you? Mindfulness, uh, I try to keep it really simple, and it really is, uh, I like to, I don't want to go all technical, but I like the John Kabat-Zinn approach, which is just basically being present with my experience and being able to go, oh, I'm, I'm having this kind of an experience right now, and here's what's going on, and I'm feeling this way. And then the beautiful thing for me is I, I'm very involved with this in communications with other people. So it's not just sitting down and me meditating and or being still and having a moment of presence, but taking that presence into the world and engaging with people so that I can experience uh, people in a much richer and deeper way. That's what I'm about and what I'd love to help other people achieve as well. Right. Well, you've been a technical storyteller as well. Tell us about that. What is a technical storyteller? Well, believe it or not, the, the tech companies in the world have jobs they call technical evangelists. And their job is to help tell technical stories, if you will, or to connect, uh, To well, let's back up for a second, to evangelize the technology, literally. And being able to do that is something that turned out I had a skill for because I, I, I seem to be able to make the technology relatable to people by saying, you know, okay, yeah, we've got this new menu, but it's not just this new menu. This is going to help you be more productive, and this is going to make more sense and be more intuitive. And so I was always relating to the end user experience rather than the technology itself. And that sort of got me a reputation for being able to explain technical things in a way that people could relate to. And, uh, and so now that's all morphed into technical storytelling and the customer journey. So I worked for Microsoft and did some work for Adobe and a bunch of others for, in that domain for quite a, for many years. So it has a lot to do with your communication skills, for sure. Exactly. Uh, it, it, it's the ability and kind of in the core of who I am, I'm always kind of a t tinkerer. You know, I kind of like to know how things work and get inside, uh, which, which makes me sort of uh, kind of a setup for me personally to kind of begin to look inside and go, how does this all this work, how does this machinery of my mind, my heart, my emotions, my spirit, and my, you know, the woundedness that we have through life, and how does that, all that interact in a way? And I was really interested in that from kind of a scientific point of view, but also just really deeply going into it. And that's why I sought out uh, and worked with um, some amazing um therapists, somatic mindfulness therapists to learn about how that all works. And then that combined with some meditation skills and some technical skills sort of 
made me mm, well suited for a role in explaining technology to people in a way they can understand. Well, it sounds pretty incredible that over at Microsoft, you were named as a most valuable professional for nine years. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you. It, it's it, that's a, an interesting, a great award to have because it's a something that they offer to people. Before I joined Microsoft, I made sort of a name for myself outside of Microsoft as an expert in server technology, and I have a book published and all that kind of stuff. And I taught a bunch of the Fortune 500 companies about how to deploy secure servers and things, and and. And they took notice of that and because I, I started posting stuff and they said, well, and so they had this award that they give people who help to evangelize uh, their technology in a way that's, you know, helps them in, in a favorable light for them, helps the people make sense of their technology. But you don't work for Microsoft. Then they give you this award um, and they, they give out, a, you know, a few in the in the slot that I was in every year. And so. Um, that was quite an honor. And then eventually they just said, why don't you just come work for us? And so I did. <laughs> well, you sound so my, you sound so modest when you talk about Microsoft uh, and your work there, but wow, you really have made waves. You've really done a lot of incredible things. And I want to know what it was like working for Microsoft. Was it what you would consider a mindful organization? Did they practice and encourage mindfulness? Mm, not per se. I would say that um, mindfulness, kind of where we are today. I mean, the, your 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 great podcast and the language of mindfulness and um, the acceptance uh, of uh, mindfulness as um, something that you might even want to do in business. Like Google even has you know mindfulness uh, courses that you can take. Yes, and I'm sure that inside Microsoft today that's going on. In fact, I know some people who are doing some work there in that world. Uh, however, when I was there, which was you know probably eight, nine years ago, they, they weren't so overtly doing that. And, um, and in some cases, you know, being, I was always the guy who was connected to the, the feeling of what we were doing. So it would kind of get me into a little bit of trouble. So I'm sitting in a, I, I remember this one story very well. We were sitting in a, in a room and we're talking about, they were going to move some things around on the user interface. And some of the features that they had had we're just going to just disappear. And I was going, well, you, what are the users going to think? They're going to feel uncomfortable with it. They're not going to know what's going on. And everybody looked at me like I was crazy. Like, what do you mean? You're, you're, you're sounding the voice of the user, what the user's going to think. And I'm going, well, now wait, you guys got to consider this. And it's not that they're inconsiderate as a company, but there's just this one particular meeting, you know, these people, uh, I know they do a lot of work on, how does this actually work with people? But I, it was a big aha moment for me. Like I'm the only guy in the room who's thinking about the end user experience in this group of engineers. And, and, uh, and that really stuck with me. And, and I turned that into a, a feature, like you get Brett, you get this feature. He's going to advocate for the customer, you know? So that became a point of my resume, a oh, strong customer advocate. <laughs> Well, that's fascinating. I want to know what took you to the point of establishing the Quest Institute, this meditation center in Dallas that you established. That was, I was working with um, a meditation teacher um, and I had been teaching meditation in some various forms. And it's sort of a hybrid Eastern 
uh, Western meditation practice that was very homegrown. And this guy wasn't famous and he wasn't very um, ambitious. He didn't want to be famous and he didn't charge. He didn't charge anything for any of his work. So I was teaching at his center in Oklahoma City. And, um, and eventually I moved to Dallas to take a job with uh, a computer company there. And, and while I was, and since I had gone to this new city uh, and I said, well, I'll just establish, I'll just start teaching meditation. And I had a couple of people who were interested. And so I started and it kept building and building and pretty soon we had like, you know, hundred people or so. And so mm -hmm. eventually I said, well, we got to have a, we can't have this in people's houses anymore. <laughs> we yeah. have a place. And so we went out and got a place and that's what became the Quest Institute. And does it still exist today? No, I don't believe it does. I think it it lasted about three or four years, and then I I moved on uh, to Boulder, and I believe shortly after that, I don't believe it survived. I see, I see. So you studied Hakomi. Is that how you say that Hakomi? Yes, H A K O M I Hakomi. So what's that? Tell us about it. Hakomi is a form of mindfulness-based somatic therapy that was invented by Ron Kurtz. He's who's passed. Uh, you know eight, six or seven years ago. Um, and um, it's incredible. It was so far ahead of its time. It requires of a therapist to be in a mindful place. And so this is where I really did my homework on how to be really present with people in a way where you're witnessing and being in connection with what's really going on with somebody and what are they saying beyond the words? And so part of the language of mindfulness practice is informed by this process where you sit and you listen and you're, or, or you're speaking, but you're being with the person that you're speaking with in a way that is not just attending to the words, but attending to the whole being. And so in this way, you begin to develop a rapport with, the, with your, in this case, a client, because you're a therapist in this role. And in that particular situation, there's this dynamic of client therapist. Um, but there's a whole lot of learning from that that you can, in technology, they have this thing they call lift and shift. You can lift and shift that into just the everyday dynamics, the world of interacting with people. And it has helped me so much. And I just want to like let people know, you know, you can, these are skills that you can learn. Uh, you don't have to be, gifted or be called to do therapeutic work. It's just like showing up, paying attention, being present, being mindful of some simple things like, how do you feel talking to this person? What kind of connection do you have? Very simple, straight up, if you don't mind, a very simple uh, example of one of the things I do in the process is learn to notice when people light up. You know, when you say something like, Somebody's talking to you and they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, things aren't going great, but we got a new puppy and they just light up. Oh, my God, we got a new puppy. You can just just learn to notice that. Yeah. And and in, con in context, say, oh, wow, that sounds great. You know, learning to notice when people's emotions shift and particularly when people light up. And when you light up, that's a that's an opportunity to be mindful and present with that experience that just comes to you. It's just a gift. Right. Right. And there's so many of those in the day if you look for them. Yeah. Well, I'm very interested in what has happened recently in your life that has 
causing you to transition a little bit and do this language of mindfulness work where we can find your website, languageofmindfulness.com. So tell us what has taken you to this present initiative that you're working on. Well, um, about a year ago, I, I got laid off from a job where I was writing content and doing sort of this technical evangelism thing for a company here in, I'm in the Seattle area. Um, and um, I thought, well, you know, this is a perfect time. And then COVID hit because I I said, I decided I was going to do a TEDx talk. And uh, so I set out, I'm going to do a TEDx talk on language of mindfulness or the, on mindfulness and communications. And in the process that the concept of the language of mindfulness kind of came into vision um, through some some coaching I was working with where guys, uh, some guy was saying, well, when you talk about this, it's not just talking about mindfulness. You're almost talking about the language of mindfulness. Like, what are the words you speak to be in the present? And I thought, language of mindfulness. It just lit up for me. And I went, mm -hmm. oh, wow. So I said, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. And, um, and so it became um, the topic of my TEDx initiative. And I did get accepted to do a TEDx talk at actually two locations last year. But of course, those got canceled because of COVID. And so one of them has been rescheduled for 2021. So that's in on the calendar. And I'm taking time to uh, launch this coaching practice and write this book out and get all this stuff together because there's a whole sequence that you can go through to really transform your relationship to engaging with people in the world that is fairly profound. Brad, how are you using mindfulness to move through this pandemic that we're all in? Oh, wow. That's such a huge question and, and uh, such an important resource. I'm so grateful that I have learned some skills in this area because, man, it has helped me. And I'm sure it's helped you, too. Yes. Um, so I, my natural inclination is to flip that back around because I really want to hear from you <laughs> I, too. I thought that's what you're going to do, but yeah, no, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you, what your routines are and what keeps you motivated and all that kind of thing. Well, I um, am really psyched about the work that I'm doing with the language of mindfulness and uh, getting it started. So I've almost in a certain way have noticing my own energy with it. It's kind of like, uh, I've discovered sort of a, a youthful boyhood sort of like, oh my God, it's a new day. I get to explore X, Y, Z. Oh, I get to go do this. I remember though, when I was a little boy having days like that, I'd wake up and go, yay, new day. Uh, and there's been a little of that in me and I'm lucky. I'm very lucky. And I just want to name how privileged I am to um, not be super crazily negatively impacted because of the COVID scenario. I'm at a stage in my life, you know, at the end of my technical career, not at the beginning of, of it. And so um, I've managed to uh, financially, I can afford to just kind of like ride this out. I'm not a, a wealthy guy, but I'm not like dying to make my mortgage. And some people are in, in a bad way. And yeah. I'm very acutely aware of that. And um, uh, and so there's a there's a way I feel kind of bad. It's not hitting me as negatively as it is some people. And so... So there's this excitement about what I'm doing. There's this gracious spot that I've landed in where I'm able to do it. And um, and then just my, my regular routines where I just connect with something luscious and beautiful 
50, 100 times a day, just for, that's my main, one of my main practices, just stepping outside and looking at the sky and going, wow, what a beautiful sky. But not just letting that moment pass by, hanging out with it on purpose, just like the definition of mindfulness, on purpose in the present moment, and letting it, letting myself feel that connection in a somatic way, like my body, how do I feel? What do I want to breathe? Oh, I want to go like this. That's what wants to happen all by itself. So we just hang out with there. You, you do that for like 40 or 50 times a day. Because what do you need? A flower, a face, a sky, a cloud. The way someone's voice lifts at the end of a phrase when they're excited about something. Little things that can just be very nourishing. Uh, Ron Kurtz would call those uh, non-egocentric nourishment. Mm. And finding little moments like that to really help you be more resilient whenever the big stuff comes. I'm going to cut in here, Mindful Tribe. I'm talking to you if you've been trying and trying to lose weight. Maybe you're feeling it's hopeless. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you've tried so many times to shed those extra pounds. Well, you know what? It's not hopeless. You can do it. I coach people just like you. I'm a practicing hypnotist. And just, you know, thousands of people have lost weight with the help of hypnosis. You will get results. You see, I personally lost 35 pounds and I've kept it off with the help of hypnosis. Using mindfulness and hypnosis, I will help you feel good and look good. And you deserve that. You deserve to be able to look in the mirror at yourself and feel fantastic about what you see. You deserve to lose that weight. Believe it. Now, take action. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash weight loss. Sign up to watch my free short video and get my five tips on how to lose weight for good. Don't put it off. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash weight loss. And now back to the show. Well, I'm interested in hearing about your new podcast because I know starting just not too long ago, a few few days ago, really, you started the new podcast, The Language of Mindfulness. What are your plans for that? Tell us about your new podcast. Oh, well, you're my role model for that one, I have to say. It's like I started looking around at... Uh, podcasts that were going around and there are um, quite a lot mindfulness podcasts but I thought there was nothing quite in the in the subject of what I'm doing which is the interactive part mm -hmm. um, and there's a whole bunch of people doing great stuff but um, and I thought you know I think I think there's a value here and so I decided I'm just going to start doing this so I'm really psyched about it and I have uh, just started it you know so it's just a brand new thing and uh, it's really fun and exciting and just another way to kind of get um, the message out about how to be more, how mindfulness plus some communication skills can transform every aspect of your life, your personal life, your professional life, and really reframe the way you, you relate to the world and walk through the world. And it's a, it's a beautiful experience. Well, you also have a Facebook group called the language of mindfulness. Tell us mm -hmm. what you've learned from having that Facebook group and what's the experience been like for you? Has it fed you? In ways, yes, I have to say. It's, it's, it's great to see people 
responding to the message, you know. So it's like when I when I I feel like I get to um, I have the privilege of, of of being helpful, and I have to say, central to who I am is something very satisfying about going. I got to be helpful. Yeah, you know, it's a good feeling. Like, yeah, it is, and there's a little bit of me. There's some me in that, and I recognize that. But at the same time, there's also a service in that too. Right. So. Right. Well, I'm interested in your own personal daily routines and what mindfulness looks like in your life. Can you share some of that with us? Sure. Um, <laughs> I I had the realization the other day that um, thinking about mindfulness isn't mindful. <laughs> <laughs> I've been so involved with thinking about the language of mindfulness. And then I, I realized, you know, I'm kind of like in my head a lot about how to talk about mindfulness and what would be dark. And then I realized, you know, it's like, okay, let's not confuse thinking about being mindful with being mindful. Right. And, uh, and that was kind of like, a, oh yeah. Okay. I might need to dial up my practice a little <laughs> more. Uh, and so it really is a lot for me about um, the practice of presence in the moment with movement, with my just day to day, motions to the world with being present with people um, in a non-trivial way, in a way where I kind of hopefully see and connect to a deeper part of who people are, uh, even in reasonably casual conversations, even as we're speaking here, there's a whole script going on behind me, a script of, uh, where I, I feel like I'm getting to know you a little better just from our conversation and, and, and part of me is tracking the connection on a personal level. Um, and that's a part of my practice. And then, of course, there's just a straight-up mindless meditation. Right, right. So when you get up first thing in the morning, do you do a meditation pretty much first thing? No, actually, I don't. I don't really meditate until a little bit later, but I start in my shower. Oh, and, do you? Uh, I do. I, so well, the way it works is I... As I I, I go into, you know, get wake up and I'm kind of like, okay, I, first thing I do is check my mood. Who am I today? What do I feel? Like? Oh, I'm feeling exciting. Oh, I'm feeling worried. And this morning it's like, oh, I've got this mindful mood podcast. And I notice all this, I'm excited about this. So I'm noticing and paying attention. That's part of my practice. And then I get in the shower and, the, and I notice in my shower, I, I like to think a lot about things. And so what I'll do is I'll actually start to notice the water on the glass in the shower and as it pours down and I'll make myself pay attention to the drops until I can actually see and not, and what I mean is like actually see the drops falling in a way and sort of feel, Oh, well, that's really kind of lovely the way they're falling and being in touch with, and then feeling the water on my skin and going, Oh, that, feels you know, getting in touch with the somatic moment of my experience that's actually part of my practice and i do it every day and it's a powerful part of my practice too that's very interesting and what about movement exercise getting your body going what happens there a lot uh i i used to also take martial arts and and that kind of thing so i, I can uh, and frequently i will uh, do a tight do tai chi or qigong uh, which are very mindful, more the slow than the athletic parts, but it's more about the presence. So it's sort of a, um, a, a way to be really intentional about your movement. 
I really love that part of it because it's so uncomplicated way to be mindful. Right. It's just being present with your in the moment body experience. And I think it was Eckhart Tolle who said, um, the body is always in the moment. And that's why it's such a fabulous practice to just pay attention to, you know, and that's pay attention to your breathing, pay attention to whatever, but you know, the, the will to making it a point to pay attention is part of the mindful process. Well, let's talk about the mindfulness of nutrition. What does nutrition look like in your life? <laughs> this is like really the landscape of my, my day, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, um, nutrition. Wow. Well, we eat in our house fairly organically. Uh, we, we, my wife is a vegetarian. Uh, and so there's a, I'm not, but I'm not like, oh, I must have beef every day. Even though I grew up in Oklahoma. And so it was, you know, potatoes, it was vegetables, meat, and, you know, every, every, every meal. It's like yes. every meal was like, so uh, now that I'm in a vegetarian household, there's always that negotiation factor and how to manage that. Uh, and so, you know, I just have a very light breakfast and something easy for lunch and, and then uh, we're pretty relaxed around food around here. It's, and what has your uh, wife taught you about mindfulness? Mm, well, my wife is a very different type than me, which is <clears throat> a ton of fun and a challenge. Um, so, yeah, I have to learn to be really present with her process. And, um, and my gosh, you know, the people that we live with and that we interact with the most are our biggest teachers, because they're the ones that are kind of underneath your emotional processes, right? They're the ones that can trigger you. You know, here, here I am teaching mindfulness. Can I be triggered? Heck yeah. And so if you, you just have to know the right buttons. And of course, if you live with somebody, you learn them. And uh, it's not like anybody goes after those things, but certainly those are there. And so I have to learn to like take a breath, back off, let her be her, let me be me and try to find this middle ground. And I've learned some things like her timing is very different with emotional stuff than mine. She tends to want to kind of, if she has an emotional reaction, she goes kind of big and then meters it down over a little bit of time. And then, then we can talk, you know, so I have to learn to make space for this interim cool down. And because if I try to engage her in that cool down, it's not going to work. You know? uh, and me, I do things very differently than that. I'm, I'm much more of a slow burn. I'm like, mm, mm. and then suddenly I'm like triggered and I'm you know, doing something unconscious and, and I can know when that's coming on and I can take a breath and breathe into it. But we all have a certain resilience. And once you use up the energy of that resilience, it's, it's gone and you go into default mode, as they say in the mindfulness world, right? And so learning that dance of, how does one person's process interact with yours in ways that both are supportive and are ways that um, bring us into un our unconscious automatic behaviors is a fabulous um, place to live and, and work for your, your own process and, and the process of the people that you're involved with as well. Well, Brett, you're writing the book, 
language of mindfulness. And I want to know what you're going to be sharing in that book that we won't be able to find in any other mindfulness books. Thank you for that question. That's a great question. Um, Some of it's the kind of things that I've been talking about where um, the study and practice of transitions, for example, is one of the things I'm a big fan of. So I mentioned before, like standing out on the porch and looking at the sky, those Another way I call it about it is enlightenment by a thousand yummy moments. <laughs> <laughs> and so adding small moments to your life, like lots of small moments to your day, can be a very, very rich resource for you because it can teach you to ground in the moment of experience whenever you need it. And so you you practice these transitional moments. I'm stepping outside to inside. What does that do to you? Did you notice stepping into a car, transitioning into a, uh, being on camera or being off camera? Those transitional moments when you're mindful are fairly significant, and we just tend to run right through them. You know, I I was teaching a class on mindfulness and communications here in Seattle, and I took the whole group one day. It was at this church, this Unitarian church, and we were all in this class. And I said, so I would take you all. We all walked from the little classroom to outside. And from outside, I'm going like, notice what this feels like to be outside. You have no roof over your head. And you walk into a little, into a building and suddenly boom, you're in a container. What does that feel like to you? And then you walked into this chapel area where it's like big and expensive. What does that do to you? Do you? Does your energy expand? Do you feel bigger? Do you feel more expansive or not? It's not like you have to, but just learning to pay attention. So that's one of the kinds of things that's in the book is uh, n- noticing these differences like that. And then, of course, bringing it into our interactions. So, for example, learning to pay attention to... Um, one of the things I mentioned before, what pe- lights people up, but another one is learning to pay attention to the quality of connection that you have with others. If somebody says something to you, does that make your connection back up and get smaller or does it pull you into it and make you get bigger? What kinds of words can do you cause you to want to feel more connected and what kinds of things can you say to encourage and nurture a connection when you want that legitimately and authentically? So naming that there's a there's this almost thinking about like an object, there's this quality of connection between people. And you can nurture that consciously if you wish. So that's one of the kinds of things that's in the book as well. Brad, I've worked in the field of bullying for over 10 years. And so I always ask a question about the connection. Do you have a story that you can share about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference? Wow. That boy, you really hit home with me. I was bullied Were you? pretty badly. Yeah. And so I really so appreciate you, your focus on that. Yeah. I was a, I was a target and um, it hurt me. I got hurt pretty badly where it would have made a difference. Well, I could have, I could pray for mindfulness on the part of any of the bullies. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's a challenging question. When I put myself back in the moment, I wasn't feeling very mindful about the things that were going on. You know, I felt very victimized and I was victimized and uh, didn't have a lot of compassion for people. 
I, uh, I can see if I'd had, I feel like in some ways what I was really missing was, you know, a mentor to help me reframe things. So if I'd had someone to coach me at those times, they might have said something to me like, you know, these, these guys, they're just acting out of their own ignorance and um, who knows what's going on for them in their house. That's right. right. And uh, a lot of them were not in such happy places. And, uh, and that's understandable. That's no excuse, but it nonetheless is, it helps to put a lens on why they do those things. Looking back as an adult, I can look back at go, yeah, I know that, that it wasn't necessarily easy for any of these people. Mm -hmm. Did you have a father role model in your life? I did, but not a very good one. Okay. Uh, uh, so my father was fairly absent. Okay. Uh, and there was uh, some great things about it and some not great things about it. So it was a mixed bag. And that in itself, particularly with kids, you know, leaves, uh, um, leaves you with a conundrum of here's a person that I care about and I can't be sure about them. You know, are they going to hurt me or are they going to help me? And I never really know. Right. And that causes a little kid to kind of get hyper aware of what's the mood of the people in the house. Am I safe now? Is something bad going to happen? And this is the source of a lot of hypervigilance in, in those, those children grow up to be what you might typically call empathic mm -hmm. in the sense that they learn to read people really, really well. Right. And it's about safety for them. Yeah. I need to know what's going on over there because I'm not sure if I'm safe if I don't. Yeah. You know? That sounds a lot like my situation where my father had this temper that you didn't know ever when it was going to explode, you know? And so, yes, we walked around very carefully. And so would you say that that has caused you to have sort of a disposition to kind of really, like you walk into a room and suddenly you're, you're getting a, um, a read on on the emotions of everybody in the room. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's very uh, understandable. Yeah. It matters. Yeah. So it's a skill that came out of being, I want to call it wounded, but you know, in an environment that was dangerous. And at the same time, um, you, you couldn't, you didn't have a choice. Yeah. And so this is a very normal, natural thing. And so I look for that. And so for you, it's like, I imagine what that's like to walk around. Some people wear that so strong that, that it becomes um, very oppressive. Uh, they, they have to like feel like they know what's going on with everybody or they don't feel safe. Ah, uh, yes. And so there's this, it's really about, I can't relax here until I know what's going on with everybody. Yeah. And other people later, they develop this more healthier approach to it, which it's more like, oh, this is just a skill where I can, I know what's going on with people because I just seem to have that. Uh, and uh, it's a beautiful thing to have. So I've got that developed fairly acutely uh, and it, and I've worked to help it, help it be um, a, a tool, if you will, for me to be with people in a way. Cause I feel like right now us talking about that, I feel like that 
tracking the connection piece, I feel like the connection got a little better there. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, as we move on in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Brett. And the 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been a very powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Uh, well, the guy's name is Phil Del Prince, and he's a Hakomi trainer therapist in Boulder and um, was a super powerful influence on me. Um, really showed me what it meant to show up and be present for people. And I have a, a story I could tell about that at some point. Okay. <laughs> All right. Maybe we'll come back to that. My yeah. second question is this, um, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? We've already talked about it a bit, but maybe you can kind of sum it up. Well, I think mindfulness has helped me mitigate my negative sides and help me reinforce and access as a, as a, resource my more positive sides by helping me be mindful with my emotions i can go oh all right i'm having a reactive part and i'm having uh empathic loving presence part which if you're familiar with the the story of the two wolves right which yes. which wolf do i feed uh, well let's feed the emotional empathic part it's not that the other part isn't real and legit it's just what do i give voice to making a choice like that. So it's helped me tremendously in terms of uh, mitigating and my negativity because I, by, I'm a pretty reactive, strangely enough, <laughs> reactive in um, person. And so it's very challenging for me to find some equanimity in that. Tell us how mindfulness uh, and breathing are connected for you intimately. Um, my breath is my go-to grounding point. When I am under stress, and uh, I always say, you, if you want to be mindful under stress, you have to practice when you're not. And so I practice connecting mindfulness to my breath, just paying attention to it. Oh, it's so simple, so easy, mm, uncomplicated. Then when I, when I find myself in an getting into an argument or feeling angry or upset, very first thing, go to my breath. So simple. Just take a pause, injecting a space into a too fast conversation. First thing I do, let me just hang out with this. For a minute. So I'll ask for space. Things are too fast for me. Let me just take a moment and be with this for a second and see what happens. Brett, what book would you recommend that can help people with mindfulness? Well, there's always the the the, um, the main one, which is uh, the well, I say the main one. You know, there's full catastrophe living, and the Buddhist brain is also a favorite of mine too. Okay, we'll put both of those in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. And the last question: Are there any apps which you would recommend that can help with mindfulness? Um. I'll, I personally don't use them, but I do know people do and benefit from uh, Headspace and uh, Calm Radio or the Calm Network as well. So both of those, the, or the, and the Insight Timer, I think, as well. So there's several, yes, that are quite, quite popular that people find very useful. 
Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Well, I'm fascinated to talk to you, get to know you a little bit and learn about your journey toward this focus on mindfulness, on the language of mindfulness that you have. And I'm very excited to uh, read your book when it publishes. And to, Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for that. And as we, as we kind of begin to wrap up, you mentioned there was a story you could tell us. And yeah, let's go so, back to that. <laughs> this, is a, this is in the book. And it's uh, one of the things I talk about is how to let your day prompt you to be mindful. Uh, instead of you having to sit down to do it all the time, let your day be a prompt. Like when you asked me, are you in mindfulness mode? To me, that's like, ah, oh, here's a chance to be mindful. I love the question. So how did I learn that? Well, I was walking down the street. And I mentioned Phil the Prince. I was walking down the street at the Boulder Mall, which is a fabulous outdoor mall in Boulder. And here comes Phil down the other side. And I see him like from 20 yards away. And I'm, uh, I light up. Hey, it's Phil. Yay. And I walk up and say, hey, Phil, how's it going? And he looked at me and he stopped. And he kind of turned his head a little bit. And he just was checking with himself. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, well, honestly, I'm not doing very well. And I said, and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, he actually gave me a legit answer and he checked first. And I thought, that's amazing. And, um, and I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope things get better. And we just went on our way. You know, I didn't, I didn't get to the story or say, Hey, right. tell me about it and try to make it better, which is a decision point. Yes. Right. Uh, Cause he wasn't asking for that. Yeah. And, um, and this guy can take care of himself. So I don't have to worry about it. Uh, so, um, but what he taught me right then is that if someone asks you how you're doing, that's a prompt to be mindful. Right, it is. So, so if someone says, how are you doing? So oh, I'm doing great. Wait a second. Are you? Maybe you are. Let's check. Let's make, let's make a point to be intentional, which is the first, one of the first conditions. I choose to be conscious, and I'm going to pay attention to my present moment. I'm not going to be judgmental about it. That's the John Kabat-Zinn of mindfulness, definition of mindfulness. I'm going to be present. I choose to be present in the moment and I'm not going to, Oh, I'm feeling great. Uh, I'm not doing so well. Well, overall I'm doing okay, but I've got a little, you know, it's like maybe you don't even speak those words to people depending on the relationship, but I can still use it as a moment to be mindful. And so that was a magnificent teaching to me that the world can prompt you and does a hundred times a day to be present. And so that's a big part of my practice is letting the world come to me and and let me remind me to not be in automatic mode language of mindfulness.com that's where we're going to find you what will we find when we go to your website well i have there some articles in the podcast um and i do write some stuff that i i like a lot i like a lot because i write it but i find it really um, I try to make it really useful. There's a newsletter there where I do post original content and um, stuff that's going on and keep up with the, the TEDx talk and the book and send out, you know, preview chapters and stuff for commentary. Uh, and I do offer coaching, mindfulness coaching and communications coaching, where I do a profile of like, oh, here's what you here's what you're doing in communications and here's ways you can be better or improve um, things to consider and create a little map for people to follow to get them from here to there. As we wrap up, I want to ask you for 
a word of advice to anyone listening who would like to become more content, a little bit more comfortable in their level of mindfulness, what words of advice could you leave us with? Start where you are and be okay with that. It's like maybe you have a billion problems, maybe you have few, wherever you are is okay. Just be present with your moment. And that doesn't mean your circumstances, it means who you are in the moment. And that's usually, and, and I believe in my core that we're all deep down, you know, getting a little Buddhist here, you know, like a, uh, there's a peacefulness and a resilience that we all have within us. If we can just be still long enough to be in touch with that. Well, I've definitely felt your stillness. I definitely feel your wisdom, and I just appreciate you being on mindfulness mode so much. So all the best as you move forward with your, with your exciting initiative, The Language of Mindfulness. And thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. And I just want to say thank you for your work in bullying and for the work you're doing to evangelize mindfulness. Just personally, and I very much appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. Bye. Bye now. Thank you. Mindful Tribe, thanks for listening. Thanks again for subscribing and reviewing the show. Thanks for telling your friends about Mindfulness Mode. And also thanks to Erica Flint, the CEO of the Cascade Hypnosis Center, for being our valued sponsor. Erica is a terrific teacher of hypnosis, and I know that personally because I am a graduate of her program. And I'm hypnotizing people on a regular basis, helping them with weight loss, helping them quit smoking, helping them with mindset blocks. Now, if you're a healer, maybe you're a coach or a therapist or a counselor, or maybe you're someone who just loves helping people, you might want to consider the powerful results that can be achieved with hypnosis. You might want to learn to become a hypnotist. And you can do that over at the CascadeHypnosisCenter.com. I will repeat that, CascadeHypnosisCenter.com. Go to her website, check it out, and consider becoming a trained hypnotist with her top-notch training. Now, take what we've learned today, Mindful Tribe, and reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.